This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we dive into the 19th chapter of John and his account of Jesus's crucifixion. Yes, indeed. We have arrived at the same spot I had fits with in session three. Um, Brent, I just hate doing this episode. It's because the story is, it just hits a different wavelength for me. I, I don't like to teach through the historical context of the crucifixion. Like the crucifixion is still, I don't know if it's my fundamentalist evangelical upbringing. I still got some, all this penal substitutionary atonement stuff rolling around inside my gut. I don't know. It's just this like, I don't know. It just is a, it's just like this holy story. And I, I never know how to deal with it. But alas, we said every verse. So... I suppose we go through every verse. And John's got some unique aspects that we'll be able to to chat about today. But this is one of those episodes I just feel uncomfortable with. And uh, we'll just let that be. We'll give word to that. We'll name it. And then we'll let it be. And everybody can just struggle on with me as we go through it. How about that? Sounds great. I'm sure you got all kinds of NET footnotes today. You'll, you'll make it all the, you'll have all kinds of juicy stuff to bring up. Uh, there's definitely some, there's, you know, there's a number where it's like, here's five possibilities on what this could be talking about. (laughs) So, uh, really you're probably going to want to go through them yourself. Um, dear listeners and look at all of those passages and, uh, come to your own conclusions because there's, there's a lot going on here. And a, a lot of them are a little bit ambiguous as far as what John could potentially be pointing to. Yep, absolutely. Or Jesus, for that matter. Sure, yeah. Uh, So just to set the context, John 18, at the end, Jesus has been having a conversation with Pilate, and Pilate comes out and says, uh, I I can't figure out anything this guy's done wrong, uh, but you guys tell me what you want to do. And he's like, well, give us, uh, they said, give us Barabbas. And so that is the end of John 18. And so that is where we continue on today. Great. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And there's our first footnote. Uh, There's apparently three different levels of beatings that someone could endure. And this is potentially the most severe of them. Um, Although I guess the language is not exactly, uh, I think because this is Greek and those three levels are Latin, that there's some potential... Uh, differences there, but you can read that footnote. It's huge. Uh, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to say, huh, Marty? (laughs) I got nothing. I mean, it's obvious here in these opening verses. Um, I, this is an absolute like it, it. This is a mocking. Like they they've got a purple robe, uh, purple the the color of of royalty. They're obviously putting on to mock him. You know, you think you're a king. You say you're a king. Let us treat you like a king. I'm sure it was probably. Um, it, it couldn't have been a nice purple robe. It, whether it was covered in, drenched in, you know, uh, urine or feces that shows up in the. I think in the other the synoptic gospels accounts when they're they lift up a sponge it says on a hyssop branch now you you can't really put a sponge up it's not going to be sturdy enough branch to put a sponge up on so what that means is a sponge has hyssop on it 
and it's being put up on a branch for him to drink. But hyssop is their toilet paper. And so he says, I'm thirsty. They say, well, go ahead and have a drink. And what they've done is they've probably hidden a bunch of used toilet paper in a sponge. The entire process just designed to completely mock him, giving him all the the attributes of a king, but in ways that completely uh, bring him pain, mock him. This is just a complete, uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely uh, soldiers trained to do this. And I, I can't even imagine. I'm assuming that maybe these soldiers probably do this on a regular basis. Maybe this is their station. I don't know if they rotated soldiers through. I don't know if they did this every day. I cannot imagine the kind of seared conscience that a person has to have, the kind of psychological damage they've endured with this kind of level of mistreatment and torture. And uh, But those are the folks that are running the show behind the scenes at this point. Well, and in, uh, I can't remember where it was, somewhere in the footnotes, it, it talks about uh, what some uh, Roman historians and officials have commented about crucifixion um, and what, you know, like Roman citizens can't be crucified, basically. Uh, you know, it would, it would be a very extreme example for a, a Roman citizen to go through this. And uh, the comments that they make about it is illuminating, I would say. Yeah. And we, I think it was in session three when we did the crucifixion week, um, we, we recommended this book and I can't believe I'm going to recommend it again. Um, but, uh, you won't hear me recommend Lee Strobel often, but he did a book case for Christ. I'm reaching way back uh, to my Bible college days, my apologetic library, not a section of my library I'm typically in love with. But when I think of like sources that went through the, the, the cold history, the cold science of what happens during crucifixion, the methodology, uh, and I, if I remember right, I feel like did a spot on job. I think pretty much nailed it. I've seen other articles. I've heard other people talk about it. Um, and that was maybe one of the best just packages of like the full package of information about the process. And I just thought it was good. So there you go. I'm going to recommend it again. Case for Christ. Uh, when it comes to, when it comes to not so much like the book and the apologetics, but when it comes to the ability to talk about what's happening, um, historically, you know, scientifically with the process of crucifixion. That's one of the sources you can go to to get a pretty good thorough treatment of that as well. Indeed. I shall link that in the show notes. Um, one other note on this section, the uh, the crown, the NAT suggests that it is not really intended to cause additional harm as he has just been, if it is the most severe form, uh, verberatio uh, in Latin apparently, if that's what Jesus just went through, he wouldn't even notice these thorns sticking into his head. Like, because he's been like, his body is in such shock at this point from the beating he's just endured. Um, the, the crown would just be in the same vein as the purple robe, just yes. mocking him in a like, Oh, you say you're King. Well, then we better put a crown on you. Right. Yep. Moving on, once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. All right, so it feels to me, and again, I, I say this because I'm trying to take an honest, critical look at what's taking place in this story. I'm not doing this to try to let Pilate off the hook. A lot of people kind of heard my my 
you know, my shtick on this and felt like I'm trying to say like Pilate's not at fault at all or he's a good guy. And that's not my point. Like Pilate has his own motivations and agendas, but it's an imperial motivation. It's an imperial agenda. It's completely selfish. It's And for him, he can't figure out what's even going on here. And this is yet another attempt. Last chapter was Barabbas. I'm going to try to I'm going to offer this horrible terrorist because obviously they would rather have Jesus and Barabbas, but they want Barabbas. Like what in the world? Like and and Pilate keeps coming out to see if you know will this satisfy them. So he just had him brutally, brutally, brutally flogged, uh, and and now he comes out. They've obviously mocked him. He's in horrible shape, and I get the impression his his kind of his goal here is like, is this good enough? Can we like put this to rest? And uh, and again, not to let him off the hook, but I'm just trying to have an honest. I want to see what's going on in the story. Some people have. We had um, we had a listener on Slack the other day, uh, talk about how they were listening to an Orthodox Jew talk about the story of Jesus and how that that Jewish thinker, not a believer, was saying that Jesus was a very anti-Rome, anti-imperial. And and I just don't see that in the text. Uh, this Slack listener was saying the same thing. She was saying, I don't, I don't see that at all. And neither do I. And yet a lot of scholarship will recognize, I think appropriately, that Jesus's message of gospel, that there's a new king and a new kingdom, is inherently, even if it is indirect, it's inherently anti-Rome. If there's another kingdom, if there's another king, if you have a gospel other than Rome's gospel, that's those are imperial fighting words. At the same time, that's really like I've heard a lot of people make this all about Jesus and Rome. I, and maybe that's an overcorrection for all the ways that we've made this just about the Jews and Jesus, because this is also clearly not the Jews. We talked about that in session three. This is not the Jews that are crucifying Jesus. This is a corrupt Jewish leadership. This is corrupt religious leadership. That's the folks that are behind this, pulling the strings, making this happen, forcing Pilate's hand. But I just like to stop long enough to make like let's just take an honest, critical look at what's taking place in the story and what's not taking place in the story. And I feel like Pilate keeps going like, "Is this good enough? Can we can we move on? Can we move on? No, no." So that's where he's at here. I feel like. Yeah, and uh, the NET also suggests that perhaps he is unconsciously making an allusion to Zechariah six. Uh, where it says, look, here's the man whose name is the branch. Uh, Oh, oh, stop. (laughs) Oh, John, Pilate, unknowingly, but John. Hot dog. What a remiss. Yeah. And the footnote does does say, you know, what, what is, as far as what Pilate is thinking, what is he doing? Is he, you know, is he mocking them? Like, okay, here's your, here's your king. Here he is, or is he? Boy, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. What What if he did know his text on some level, and he is intentionally alluding to their book? Oh, the ramifications Boy, that, that of that would be, would be huge. <laughs> oh, gosh. I can't even like, whew. Okay. Wow. NET, stop it. Yeah. But at a minimum, it's like, it seems like he's uh, trying to, you know, evoke some sort of pity. Like, okay, does he, sure. does this look like a king, really? Are Are you sure? Are you sure that's what sure. this guy's doing? <laughs> yep, yep. So anyway, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Uh, and the footnotes point out here, like, we've already established that the Jews don't have the authority to 
run their own capital punishment. So, uh, and they don't seem to take Pilate's words seriously as far as you take him and crucify him. Like they, they don't, they continue to ask him to do it for them. So yeah, there's definitely a push and pull here, an imperial tug of war where Pilate's like, man, there's nothing going on here. I cannot figure it out. You know, this is your deal. You like, you want me to crucify you crucify him? Not because he's saying they can just like, this is your problem. Like, take it. You, you, you figure this out, but I'm not doing this. The Jewish leaders insisted we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And that is specifically referring to uh, Leviticus 24 uh, as far as blasphemy. Oh, sure. Yep. When, uh, as opposed to the, we have a law, the law in general, they're specifically referring to one law. Um, but when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Now, I wonder if, you know, when Pilate goes back in, is this because when they say son of God, well... We've already talked about in session three and four and elsewhere, like we've talked about how Rome has their own son of God narrative. Like that's very much attached to their gospels and Caesar Augustus and, and the whole kind of the whole imperial cult and the imperial mythology behind all of that imperial worship. And so I, I wonder now if all of a sudden he's like, whoa, are, wait a minute, did I miss something? Are you mounting an anti-Rome campaign? See, I wonder if all of a sudden it's got his attention. It could be a few things that he's coming in to ask him about. I don't think it's theological. Pilate's certainly not concerned about theology. I think he's all of a sudden politically like, wait, he claimed what? Okay, hold on. That feels like he is coming to take down Rome. And Jesus' response can be quite different this time. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, does your, I've always wondered about this verse, Brent. Does the NET have any um, given to you from above? We always read that as Christians and immediately assume heaven is there any possibility that the NAT speaks to there that what he could be saying is that Pilate is a man under authority? Like, oh, you're not Caesar. I know that, like, I know I know you have power, but that power is given to you by somebody else. Or do they have any comment there? Uh, bafflingly, no, considering how many footnotes there are in this chapter. <laughs> I There was something somewhere. I'm trying to remember where I read it in one of my... Archaeological study Bible, Jewish study Bible, something somewhere had uh, a note about that. And I, I don't know if the only way to read this is Jesus saying, you wouldn't have any power over me if unless God gave it to you. I think he could be saying, I know how your power and authority works. The problem here is not is not Rome's power and authority. The problem here is... And then there was a there was a note about the one who handed me over to you. I believe the NET does have a note in there about yeah. That's is that Judas or is that right? That's the big note in this section. Okay, yeah, sure. Like, is that Judas that he's referencing? Is that because the one is singular? It seems to refer to an individual. So your gut, want, at least my gut, wants to say it's the chief priests. Because it, it shouldn't be Judas. I think the NET's footnote there is, is great. Um, they suggest maybe it's Caiaphas as the high priest and the one who actually sent Jesus over. That makes a lot of sense to me. 
But I, I think we over-spiritualize this verse, I think is my my main point, but I could be wrong. Yeah, and the NAT does say it could potentially be the chief priest, the one the one body of people who handed me over to oh, you. Oh, sure, okay. It would be, yep. you know, maybe a little bit of a stretch linguistically, but um, yep. considering the conversation and who's there presently, uh, like Pilate keeps trying to give him back, and Jesus is like, no, the one group out there right. is is the greater sin. Right. But this this verse is totally fascinating to me because like Jesus is not saying the one who handed me over to you is the one guilty of sin. He's not saying the pilot has no sin in this matter. Sure. But he's yep. like, look, you know, it's it's really there it's a bigger problem for them than it is for you. And yeah, and I think it's another case where Jesus is like you know, I, I'm not trying to say he's making light of Rome. I just think Jesus' whole posture in this entire conversation is like, I, I'm really not that concerned. <laughs> like, Rome is not the thing occupying my attention. Rome is not that big of a deal. Don't think too highly of yourself, Pilate. I know you got power. Like, no big deal. There's a bigger thing going on here, and it ain't, you know, your your Roman political quandary. But anyway. and And like... Pilate is endeared to him. It says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Okay, so right. And I love you pointing out the first uh, sentence there. And then, of course, the Jewish leaders, the corrupt Jewish religious authority, they they pull the po- the political card. They basically say, "All right, listen. If you don't do what we want, your li- we're going to make your life very very difficult. And we know how you need to be. You can either do this for us, or you can have a much bigger headache on the other side of this. But you should probably just do what we say." And the phrase "friend of Caesar," I guess, uh, for a long time we thought it was this just the general sense of uh, someone who is loyal to Caesar. Um. But this is a title that was used later on in uh, the times of Vespasian, like an actual, like it's just a special designation as a person, a friend of Caesar. Um, you could maybe think of it as like a presidential medal of freedom. I don't know if that's quite the, quite the right analogy, but something along those lines where Caesar is saying, oh, you are a friend of Caesar. And it sort of elevates you because they say, um, I don't know what the source is for this, but uh, Pilate would have been an equestrian class. So this would elevate him above the other equestrians, at least, um, if not to the same level of a senator. Sure. Yep. That makes complete sense. And I guess there's some more recent evidence that this title was actually in use at the time. Sure. And Pilate's installment uh, in in this uh, in this leadership role was because he had a specific friend in Rome, um, in Caesar's circle. And so he had these special connections, but then that guy was accused of treason or something. And so Pilate's kind of on shaky ground and the NET suggests maybe the, maybe the Jewish leaders are aware of this situation. And, um, basically, I mean, this is a huge footnote, so go read this if this is at all interesting to you, but basically they appeal to, uh, Pilate's position say, look, if you, if you don't take care of this, then we're going to say all these things about you and you're not going to like, you're going to lose everything at this point. You know how, you know what your position is now, you know, you're on, on thin ice and then it works because 
right after this, Pilate's like, okay, judgment, done. Right. Yeah, I think I, all that stuff sounds familiar, rings some bells. Uh, I think that's all just great contextual work there. I, I, yeah, they leverage, they see an opportunity. They didn't just see it in the moment. They've probably planned this. They knew about it. They've been holding this card, and now they leverage it. So, yep. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat in a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It's just nonsense, bro. <laughs> The NET footnote, the NET still translates it Aramaic, but then the footnote says, in the Greek, it says in Hebrew. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Speaking of baffling, man. Um, It was the day of preparation of the Passover, which we'll talk about in the next episode, so I'm going to hold the thought on that. Uh, It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. Is like, okay, so they say, here's the interesting thing. We're always familiar with them shouting what when Pilate says, what do you want me to do with him? What, what does everybody know that we that they yell, Brent? Crucify him. Crucify him. And yet John is one of the only gospels that has them yell, take him away. Mm. If they're yelling in Hebrew, I'm not sure if this holds true in Aramaic, because there is a good chance that they could be talking to Pilate in Aramaic. Um, that's a much, uh, uh, I have much less you know qualms about that, but... If they're saying it in Hebrew, they would be shouting Azazel, Azazel. Now, Azazel is the name of the scapegoat. Take him away. They would be essentially shouting scapegoat, scapegoat, crucify him. So very interesting in John because there seems to be a Yom Kippur uh, like um, uh, motif taking place here. They, they put a crown of thorns in his head, which you could say that's a stretch, but I mean that He's being set up and treated like the scapegoat on Yom Kippur, and 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 then they say take him away. Only gospel in which they don't just yell crucify him. Here they say take him away, send him away, send him away, scapegoat him, crucify him. Interesting. Uh, man, so many good possibilities. I love it. Um, where were we at? Shall I crucify your king? So Pilate's like. Even though he he's already sat down in his judgment seat, he's like, he's given up. He's just going to try one one last time. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. Well, and it's also got like a, it also has this hint, this tinge of uh, like now he's like, okay, you're going to pull this card on me. I'm now, for the rest of the story, he's going to be somewhat irritated and taking his own stand. And so he's like, all right, this is, I'm not. If this is how we're going to play this, he because because they don't want him to be their king, and yet Pilate's like, okay, this is your king. This is how I'm going to play this. Now he's your king, so I'm going to insult you because you forced my hand. I'm going to, and so, and they respond in kind. Yes, um, they say we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answer, which is a bold. Oh statement. my gosh, <laughs> that's a bold statement. We have no no Melech but Caesar. Really, wowzers. Yeah. Okay, that. Wow. Okay. We've talked about the corruption of the chief priest before, but this is like a new a new level. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh man. Finally a pilot handed him over to them to be crucified. And to them, I guess in this case would be the soldiers who carry out the crucifixion cuz eh, I mean I, I think in 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 motion he's probably handing them over to I think the language is going to suggest he hands them over to the chief priest but now it's under his order his judgment his edict they essentially have the paperwork literal or not they they have the paperwork to carry out the 
and the soldiers are going to do it, but um, Pilate ain't going to go out to the crucifixion site. So he's given him the order and they're going to make sure it's carried out. Yes. Yes. So in the NIV, it says, well, we're actually still in the same verse. It says, so the soldiers took tar- charge of Jesus, but the NET doesn't have soldiers and doesn't say anything about a footnote. So I'm wondering if the, uh, if the NIV is taking, is putting soldiers in there interpretively, uh, as I just suggested without realizing that it was in that same verse Sep- sure. separated by a heading in the NIV, which is, you know, clearly not there in the original. So sure. Feels like two separate things, but, but really it's all, I don't it's hard to say. Huh? Yeah. Which does maybe change what the, they, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's a great, great question. I don't know. I, I should, I should probably look at the Greek and see what word is behind that, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. <laughs> just, just gonna, just gonna make that change. Uh, I'm not sure skulls the correct, uh, the best interpretation there either. But if there's no footnote there, I'm just gonna let it rest. Well, the NHT does have, have a footnote. Um, the Latin word for the Greek is uh, Calvaria, and which is where the uh, English Calvary comes from. It's a transliteration of the Latin. Uh, it's not a place name, so I don't know. Not a whole lot there. Yep, and I've never done the actual research on this or deep, deep word study. I remember Ray teaching me that that, that word doesn't mean skull. It means, and I can't remember if he was saying that John doesn't use the word skull or what's taking place there, but that the word actually more appropriately means head rather than skull. It gives the impression of the part of the body from the neck up, not the bone structure of the cranium. But nevertheless, I digress. Uh, getting a little scientific there, Marty. <laughs> well, it does, it does end up mattering later in the story about, you know, which hill we're at and what's being said and done. But indeed, there's some debate there. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. All right, so there goes Pilate. He's, he's, uh, he, like... They've flexed their muscles. They've played their card, and Pilate's like, "Hey, I'm doing. I'm not doing you any favors. Like you've just cornered me. I'll I'll write whatever I want to on that sign. Thank you very much." Well, and I almost wonder if it's like a justification thing because if if he's just a uh, nobody who's saying something about himself, like does does Rome have any interest in dealing with with a crazy man? But if if he has like actual influence, then it's like, okay, well, you know whether whether you guys, the chief priests, think he's actually the king or not, apparently a bunch of people do. And so now he is a threat to Rome. And so I have to do this. So I don't know. Well, and it's Pilate's opportunity to simultaneously also take a swipe at this Jewish, you know, people that's such a thorn in his side, because when you walk past that cross, forget the whole thing going on between Pilate and the chief priests and that personal thing. If you walk by that, it's just this, this it's like, this is what, we, here's this Jewish people and here's their king hanging on a cross. Like, there's just this backhanded, 
you know, how, how badly we look down on you Jewish folk from Pilate's perspective uh, gives him an opportunity to accomplish all kinds of other imperial agendas with that sign. So absolutely. Uh, and we did talk about this idea of uh, crucifixions taking place right outside the city. Uh, when we were going through season two of The Chosen, they depict this in uh, maybe a couple of the episodes where... Um, where it's it's literally right outside the gates like as you're going to the city you, you have no choice but to see these crucifixions taking place so um, this totally fits in line with the general idea depicted there we'll see what they do with the actual later crucifixion scene i'll be stunned if they do that but we'll find out <laughs> well i don't know i mean it's right there in the text so they've we'll see. stunned me before we'll <laughs> that it would not be the first time even close that they've stunned me with their choices it's great uh okay when the soldiers crucified jesus they took his clothes dividing them into four shares one for each of them with the undergarment remaining this garment was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom uh, and the nat talks about this this particular garment there's no really modern equivalent to it um, it's kind of like a shirt, but it's full length. It is basically functioning as underwear, but it's not like if you say underwear or undergarment, like the NIV does, kind of gives you the wrong idea uh, because it's a much more substantial um, covering than than what we would normally consider that to be. So sure. Yep. Let's not tear it. They said to one another, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. All right. So here John has, you know, specifically references a fulfillment of Psalm 22, uh, which is the psalm that's so relevant to this scene, right? This is, um, uh, uh, there was a, a late professor at Hebrew University. His name was Shmuel Safrai. And I, I can't, we talked about this somewhere, I think. But I can't remember where, Brent, and I get this question so often. It's becoming my most often received email um, by far. But Jesus has this famous saying on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I bet once a week I get an email of somebody trying to figure out whether or not God forsook Jesus on the cross. That was not the case years years ago. I don't know why that's all of a sudden such a big issue. Um, and a question on people's mind, but Jesus is not just saying, he's not just crying out that he feels forsaken. He may feel forsaken. I'm sure he does feel forsaken, but what he's doing is he's reciting Psalm 22. Smul Safrai was one of those professors, not a believer, uh, Orthodox Jewish professor. He taught uh, biblical history. Um, he taught all about the land of the Bible. And one of the things, he was a contemporary, um, a colleague of David Flusser, who we've talked about before. And he he was one of the teachers for a lot of my teachers, like Ray. He was one of the one of his professors. Um, and he did a whole. I thought it was a dissertation, but it might have just been an article. He did a study about his theory is that all seven of Jesus's statements on the cross. There are seven things that Jesus says on the cross. All of them come from Psalm twenty two, and Psalm twenty two was paired up with. I'd have to go back and check. In its original form in the first century, Psalm twenty two was actually multi-psalms put together into one multi-part song. So I think it was 22 and 23, maybe 21, 22, and 23, 22, 23, 24. I can't remember. But there are two or three psalms that go together as one song. And Safrai showed how all seven of those statements are coming from that 
that song. So everything that Jesus says while he hangs on the cross, in Safrai's perspective, is Jesus, he's just repeating Psalm 22. He's just repeating Psalm 22. He's just repeating Psalm 22. So so no, because when you look at Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is actually a psalm that talks about intense suffering, but God's provision. Intense suffering, but God's presence. Intense suffering, like you feel like God's forsaken you, but he hasn't. You feel ashamed, but God is not ashamed of your suffering. That's the context of Psalm 22. So if you think of it as a remez, and you don't have to buy into Pardes to, to see this, but if you think about it in terms of a remez, Jesus isn't crying out that he's forsaken because he is forsaken. Jesus is reciting a psalm that reminds him and says to everybody listening, don't you think that God has forsaken me because that's not who God is and that's not what God does and God is not ashamed of suffering and he's not ashamed of me now as I hang on this cross. And we just do all kinds of weird, wacky theological things with this. But these stories and all the gospels are going to make sure they tie this to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is going to be a major and I think it's because Jesus was reciting that psalm. Now, some will go as far, and I think Safrai did this as part of his work as well. There is what Safrai called, if I'm quoting him correctly, uh, the life psalm. So every Jew in the first century, at least many Jews, would have had what they called a life psalm. They had a psalm that was their their own. It was just between them and God. You didn't tell anybody else what your psalm was. But you memorized this psalm. You stored this psalm up in your heart. This was your personal psalm between you and God. And when you died, you wanted to have one of two things on your lips as you give your last breath. You either want to be, you either want to be saying Shema or you want to be saying your life psalm. The goal for the Jew was to live the text, to learn the text, to teach the text, to pray the text, and to die the text. That was number five. You wanted to die the text. It meant you wanted to be reciting text as you uh, expired. Like if you had that ability, if you had, if God blessed you with the ability to be reciting text as you died, that was considered to be a huge blessing. And so what is Jesus doing? He, in Safrai's mind, he's reciting his life psalm over and over and over, which, um, which by the way, when you read Psalm 22, and you realize that this is, if that's true, and that's Jesus' life sum, this is why Jesus has insight to his calling. This has been his prayer time every single morning, reciting this life sum. Like, this is why he has the perspective, I go to die. This is why he's ready to lay his life down, because he has, in a very intimate prayer time with the Father, insight into what God has been shaping him for, asking him to do, and all those kinds of things. So, it doesn't mean surprise, right? I don't know how much debate there is about that. But that's why Psalm 22, Jesus is not forsaken on the cross. The exact opposite. The exact opposite. Jesus is very, very much accepted, not forsaken, um, uh, glorified, the scriptures will say, exalted. It's the opposite of forsaken. So, for all those folks that uh, send me those emails about that, there we, we finally answered that question very directly once and for all. He is quoting Psalm 22, and uh, and that's the, the the context of what's being said there. And here in John, we don't we do have some we do have some quotes. Um, I believe Safrai included uh, "Woman, here is your son." We're going to read that here in just a bit. Here is your mother. I can't remember if he had to get into Psalm 
24 or 21, whichever one it was, to get that. I can't remember how that worked, but I, I believe Safrai included those in his work. But I digress. But there you go. There's the context for that. So we'll include the Wikipedia article for Shmuel Safrai. Um, he has uh, a bunch of articles he published through Jerusalem Perspective. Uh, the article that we're talking about in Psalm 22 is not among that set. There's also the Jewish Virtual Library. Um, which has some of his stuff, but I was not able to get that website to load as we're um, preparing for this. So um, maybe... I believe most of that stuff sits behind a paywall too, but some may actually have access to that and there may not be a paywall too. I don't know, but it used to be a paywall. Yeah, I was hoping I could at least get abstracts for these articles and figure out, you know you know, which one it is. And if you wanted to pay for it, at least you would know where to go. But uh, unfortunately, I cannot get the Jewish virtual library to load right now. Um, so I, I haven't been able to find that specific thing, but, uh, the Wikipedia article has several, uh, links where you can at least find out more about this guy and maybe read some of his other stuff or whatever. Um, so that's unfortunately all we have for you. Um, but that will be there. Okay. Okay. So back to John near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now for all the debate about who the disciple Jesus loved is, and there is some huge debate. um, There are a lot of people that don't think it's John, the author of the gospel. I definitely think it is. And I think this is the uh, nail in the coffin for that argument, in my opinion, is because we we know from church history and church tradition, or should I say church tradition and church history, we know that uh, Mary was with John when he went with his family to Asia and Asia Minor. Um, tradition says she dies in Ephesus. Uh, we actually had a part of our group from just a couple months ago, a few months ago. Uh, we had some of them that went up and actually got to see the place where they say her house was. Not that it's the actual historical place, but who knows? But that's where tradition and history has her. So this would make complete sense. Um, This is where Jesus sets up that arrangement is right here on the cross. And that would make the disciple whom he loved most definitely the apostle John. I guess a lot of people have said that uh, his mother's sister is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Um, but the NET footnote points out, A, that would be weird to have, you know, two people in the same family named Mary, which I agree. I think that remains true today. It would be weird to name multiple children the same thing. Um, but in addition to that, they say it's possibly a juxtaposition to the four soldiers. John specifically says there are four soldiers. And so uh, there being four women here in juxtaposition to that. So... Uh, and, sure. and the fact Very the fact that his okay. mother's sister is not named would suggest that she or would possibly suggest that she is uh, John's mother. And, you know, John, as much as he doesn't name himself, he also doesn't name his family members. Yeah. 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 I like that. N.E.T. Mm. Um, which would make John Jesus' cousin, uh, which we have talked about previously as far as his disciples <laughs> being often connected in that sort of way (laughs) i love it i love it i love it okay uh here's the moment later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled jesus said i am thirsty 
A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And with that, uh, that's where we're going to end our episode, on purpose, kind of intentionally. And that might make our next episode a short one. But um, yeah, I, there's a there's a certain amount of... Um, I don't know what I would call it. What did I call it earlier? Holiness, sanctity. There's a certain amount of mystery. There's a certain amount of gravity uh, that I like to leave in this story. And so we'll end our episode here in a very uncomfortable, just like just like in Holy Week, just like when we get to this spot every year where we have Good Friday and, and then all of a sudden you have uh, Holy Saturday and you have this space of like, what do you, Jesus has just died and I want to keep going. I want to race ahead. I want to get to the next chapter. I want to, and we're going to stop our episode here just to put that same space and um, whatever you want to call that, put that same gravity into our study today. If you're listening in real time, of course, you will have to wait a week for the next episode. Uh, if you're if you're not listening in real time, I would suggest instead of just immediately playing the next episode, Ooh. just just stop here for a little bit. And maybe it's only an hour. You know, you don't necessarily have to wait a week or a full day or anything like that. But you know, give some give some thought to this moment, um, to the gravity of this this moment. Consider what it would be like um, for those four women and for John, you know, there at the foot of the cross, like seeing like I'm, I'm sure you could see like him struggling and then and then he stops. And what in the world are they thinking at this point? Um, right. Because it's yep. a it's a pretty, pretty dark moment. You think that, you know, what's going on and you think that this like at some point he's going to pull out of this. Right. And obviously, we know what happens, but what are they thinking in that moment? So give that some thought. Right. Yep. You got it. All right. Um, I would just say, you can find more details about the show at bamonosamshop.com. Check out the show notes. Uh, Shmuel Safrai, you can dig into that. Um, check out the NET. There's tons, tons of footnotes um, that, uh, that we didn't cover at all or only scratched the surface of. Um, there's, there's a lot... A lot of study and a lot of things that have been said um, about these passages, and so there's there's plenty of stuff to dig into there. Uh, so check all that out, and thanks for joining us on the BMO Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.